Hello, and welcome to Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narratives I was taught within white evangelicalism. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. My first memoir, As Familiar as Family, is now available to purchase on my website at NikkiPappas.com. I'll share more about this at the end so we can get to today's episode. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by a very special returning guest. Pastor Emmy Kegler is here, and I'm so excited to be talking with her. Emmy is the author of the book One Coin Found, which we talked about in season three, and the author of another book, All Who Are Weary, which was released last fall, and we will be discussing that book today. So yeah, we talk about easing the burden on the walk with mental illness. So thank you for coming onto the show again, Emmy. How are you today? Um, I'm, you're, you're absolutely welcome. It's a delight to be here. It's always good to have, hang out with you and talk to you. Um, I'm doing, I'm doing well. Um, it is, uh, we're recording this, I think on the last day of May and we have been participating our, our house and a good chunk of our neighborhood in a thing we're doing here in the Midwest called no mo may, which is intentionally letting your yard not get mowed. Um, so that it helps the pollinators and early like species of insects and small wild animals. Um, to basically use that long grass as a way to um, sort of help their their springtime start. And I'm looking at it, and I think my grass is like eight or nine inches long, and I'm going, this is going to be a, a tough row to, to mow for sure. So that's <laughs> fine. That's fine. We'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, that's my my major, like what I'm looking towards starts today is just like, oh boy, what am I going to get? So. That's so tall, but I've never heard of this. And I love that so it's much. New, I, it's new this year, at least as far as I know, I'm sure it's been, you know, working its way up. Um, so now, now it's something that I've heard of, but um, it, it is a little suspicious. Like, are we just being lazy? And we put a little yard sign <laughs> in the yard and said like, no, 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 it's for the bees. We're not mowing for the bees. We're good people. Please don't I love that. Sitting. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was thinking with our HOA, <laughs> they, mm-hmm. never, they would never, <laughs> but yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So yeah, like you've heard of no shave November. Now you've heard of no mo may. So exactly. perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I know people can't see me, but I'm just doing a lot of dancing this morning. Cause I'm just happy. I'm just happy. All right. Well, to help us kind of jump into today's conversation, can you share a little more about yourself and your background? Anything you think would be helpful for our conversation around your book and mental illness? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Emmy Kegler. The pronouns you can use for me are she, her, and hers. Um, I am 37. I live in the Midwest. As I've already mentioned, I live in Minneapolis. I've served as a uh, Lutheran pastor here for the past six years um, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America at a small neighborhood congregation. Uh, I'm married. We have two cats and two dogs between my wife and I, and my wife is pregnant due this September. And um, yeah, in the context of why we're, why I am talking about mental illness today is that I live with depression and anxiety. As far as um, we know, it's both are have been um, chronic in my life for about 20 years. Um, the, the start dates on those are a little fuzzy. It's something that my therapist and I joke about sometimes. It's just like, well, you don't wake up one day and go like, oh, I think I have a mental illness. Um, but so yeah, just recognizing that part of my faith journey and part of my work as a Christian public leader also involves living with chronic mental illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I could just say that your story has helped invite me into exploring my own story. And Mm -hmm. so I definitely appreciate your vulnerability in that. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, your second book has come out titled all who are weary. And I rated it with five stars on Goodreads and read review that I wanted to share here. So I wrote in all who are weary, Emmy Kegler compassionately and vulnerably weaves personal narrative with biblical exploration to show how we can ease the burden on the walk with mental illness. She also included questions to ask and further reading at the end of each chapter. Emmy's pastoral heart and the words she penned continue to be gifts to the church. I highly recommend all who are weary. So what prompted you to write all who are weary and who did you have in mind as you were writing this book? Mm -hmm. With my first book, One Coin Found, which you and I have talked about and you mentioned at the top of the episode, 
I talked briefly about my experience with mental illness, particularly in the context of my depression and a little bit about my anxiety. And I was really surprised in the reactions to that first book, how many people identified the way that I was talking about my own experiences of living with mental illness as liberating and freeing for them. And some people specifically said, I haven't heard someone talk about mental illness the way that you do. And that truly caught me by surprise because I think most of what I say about it is um, repeating and reforming what I've heard other people say that has been liberating for me. But then that really gave me that indication that we still need more content in the Christian publishing sphere around how to faithfully understand mental illness, going beyond the idea of is a failure of faith. And if you pray, then Jesus will take it from you. How do we get past that? And there's a lot of good books on that already, which is why, as you mentioned in the review, there's a further reading section to every chapter where I'm pointing towards, you know, if this chapter spoke to you, here's where to go next. Um, and I think one of the things that was really important for me was trying to write the book in a way that could be read by people in all experiences of mental illness. So people who live with mental illness, whether it's a, an acute occurrence, you know, one time sort of temporary thing or chronic like mine, but also the people who walk with them and people who accompany people with mental illness. So that might be a family or a you know, family member or a partner or a close friend. I also wanted to write it in a way that it was accessible and usable for pastors and church leaders and church communities for understanding occurrences of mental illness in their community and how to you know, create communities that, you know, reduce the, the chances of mental illness, but also create, you know, safety for those of us who live with it. And also to write for, um, I wanted to try to at least give a little glimpse into some of the religious aspects of mental illness for therapists who might be walking with somebody who's experiencing mental illness and going like, why are they framing it in this way? Um, and how can I maybe invite them into a different framing from a, you know, a spiritual perspective? Oh, that's so good. Like so many different perspectives and so many different people that you're speaking to and quite an undertaking <laughs> to address all those people. So I'm curious, like if you had any insecurities in your writing in light of trying to speak to such a vast topic, but also so many different people, and if you would mind sharing those and anything else that was difficult about writing this book. Mm -hmm. The top thing that was difficult about writing it was that I wrote it entirely during the first half of the, or I guess you can't say half, but the first part of the COVID 19 pandemic in 2020. Wow. And so this is a time when my wife and I are basically not leaving the house. Um, she worked from home for a bit, but as a veterinarian, that obviously needed to transition back to clinic hours. And so I'm working from home, I'm leading worship from home, I'm doing all of this, you know, learning about recording and how to splice a video together and everything like that as part of my ministry work. And I was just so drained. I just felt like I had nothing nothing left to give, no creative energy. When I wrote One Coin Found, it was not uncommon for me to sit down and, and the words would come out and they would be, you know, a decent first draft. <laughs> they would certainly need a, a good editorial hand, but there would at least be something to say. And with All Who Are Weary, I just felt like I had to take a crowbar to my own soul every day and just try to pull something out. And so I actually pushed the the due date on the manuscript quite a few times. And my editor, who is a dear friend of mine and who I trust with my story had to really keep pulling on me to get me to that point. It was just really, really hard to write. Yeah. I'm sorry. My daughter nope. is here. So I'm going to send her yeah. out real quick. No, take, take a note of, take a note of the timestamp. <laughs> we can just cut this out. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> now let's see if I can like bounce back from that. Um, just her earnest little face staring directly <laughs> into the camera. And I'm like, hi, kid, I see you. Yeah, I'm not gonna yeah. you. And she loves the camera. Yep. She loves the camera. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. All of that, man. Yeah. To put that into context of when you're writing and the pandemic and oh, that imagery of a crowbar to your soul every day to sit down and try to get something out and onto the paper that is such a powerful image there. Um, 
so yeah, so it sounds like a lot of it was hard. Uh, was it hard because of what you're writing, because of what it was bringing up for you, a combination of that? Like, I think it was predominantly hard because of what I was writing and because of the time frame in which I was writing it, this, this sense of COVID um, and the global pandemic and pre-vaccine. So still this like yeah. very long waiting period of like, what's going to happen next? You know, I think when we talk about what people say, like, I did this during COVID, I think people often mean that first year, like March, 2020 to March or April, 2021, when we had no vaccine access and we're just, or, you know, or vaccine access was restricted to those who most essentially needed it, which was completely legitimate. But the rest of us are just sitting there going like, what, what, what's next? What's next for us? And so I felt that pressure very, very, very keenly. I also had a lot of insecurity because um, the first book was this pouring out of things that I've been learning and distilling for 30 years. And the second book was just, I felt like I'd put everything in the first book. Yeah. Um, okay. What, what do I add next? Like, what's the next thing? And I kept thinking of how many popular musical artists or bands have, you know, the one first album and it's just amazing. And then their second album kind of flops because they put everything in that first album. And I just had to, to some extent, I had to be okay with it not being at least what I felt as good as the first book and not feeling as smooth. And I had to do a lot of work around letting that go. Hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't easy and it, it's still, it's still hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think we talked about this even in our first call, like, uh, like me being part of writing groups and stuff. And like, I just finished uh, like I have an editor looking at my draft of my book that I'm hoping to self-publish this year. And she was talking with me about how hard it is to cut things out because you think like, this is my one chance or yeah, like mm -hmm. I want to get it all in there. But then she was like, you can save things for another book. And so it is so hard to distill something to let's just include the things that touch the main point I'm trying to make and so yeah so for that feeling of okay like I already gave it my all in this and now here I'm coming to this other book and what do I include here and yeah like I can't even imagine like have you watched um tick tick boom is that what it was with Andy yeah, Garfield, who uh -huh. I love um oh my gosh but yeah and so I can't even like I'm blanking on the name of the person he was uh, portraying who had written rent but showing how the very first thing that he had worked on for like 12 years or something and then he finishes it and he's like what's next and they're like write your next one <laughs> and so like that feeling of like you were saying you've been kind of working on what one coin found was for your whole life gathering those stories putting that in there so yeah that is just really interesting to think about how did you distill something down to this book and, and what you include there? And also the, the isolation of a pandemic and all those things kind of swirling together to make it difficult. So what brought you joy in your writing then? To be perfectly honest, what brought me joy was getting a chapter done. It was mm. very project motivated. And I think that's okay. Uh, especially in the conditions in which I was writing. And again, I had to learn to be very tender with myself around mm -hmm. this isn't the same as the first book. This isn't the same as any book I'll probably ever write because I'm doing it in the shadow of this global pandemic for which we don't yet see an end. And things, of course, are the same and different about COVID-19 now when we're recording in May of 2022. So what brought me joy was just getting to the end of a word count goal for the yeah. day and just going like, okay, I did get something on the page. I did get something written down. And there were a lot of, I think the, the other hard thing about all who are weary, which was happening to some extent with the first book, but this second book, it was really clear was there were so many experiences that I've had as a pastor walking with people with mental illness. And yet, I did not want to treat those as case studies. Like, let me present to you this story of someone who is vaguely anonymized, but they'll recognize themselves if they're in the book and then use that as this case study and this, this interesting observation. It didn't feel right. And again, this might've just been the context in which I was writing. It didn't feel right to make those people's stories 
the the center point when it wasn't you know like let me do an interview with you and talk to you about this it was more about what was my experience that felt really um almost re-victimizing and and very decent and you know like too centered on me and my narrative rather than on the the larger goal and so one of the other joys was this moment when I could come up with a metaphor or a good story out of my own experience that would allow me to set up a chapter and talk about what was coming next and how to address this particular category of mental illness that I was dealing with in that chapter without turning someone else into the, the case study. And that brought me a lot of joy when I could get to those points of like, here's how I'm gonna present it without having to re-victimize someone else. Yeah, I, I am all about those like goals. And like you said, sometimes that is how to do it is I just got to get this workout or this chapter done or whatever the thing is. And then yes, like the spark of being able to make this connection. Yeah, I, I resonate so much with that. Well, okay. So with this vast umbrella of mental illness, how did you decide what to write about? Because, mm. you know, when I look in your book, right? Like you have 12 chapters, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and they range from sin and seeking treatment to psychosis, addiction, boundary, self-care, like, yeah. How did you decide what to include? Yeah. I was trying to set up really the book moves in three parts and they're not sort of equally defined, but the first part, first few chapters of the book talking about mental illness as an overarching idea in Christian faith. And so that's where I talk about what happens when we talk about mental illness as sin, what happens when we use prayer, and what does seeking treatment look like? And then I moved into the second phase or second portion of the book where I'm talking about different groups of symptoms. And that was one of the hardest things because I didn't want to write a book that mimicked the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, where it says sort of like, if you're experiencing X, Y, Z, A, B, and D, you must have fill in the blank with a particular diagnosis. I'm not qualified to do that. That's not my, my, that's not my area. Um, that's, that's the area of a psychiatrist or a doctor or another licensed therapist. And so what I was trying to do was say, let's take these overarching categories of symptoms. So when I talk about sadness, I'm talking about depression, but I'm also talking about the depression that one experiences as part of bipolar uh, personality, you know, the bipolar experience. I'm talking about um, anxiety as a component of psychosis and um, mental illness. I'm talking about, you know, addictions, but those also fall under other categories. And so trying to talk about things in the form of symptoms rather than about, um, you know, specific diagnostic phrases. And then finally, I wanted to end the book with some ideas about how do we create systems that care for people with mental illness and also prevent occurrences of mental illness, which is why I end with talking about boundaries and self-care. Um, I have to admit, just recently, I saw someone, um, it was floating around Twitter, and then of course made it its way into all other forms of social media, where people talked about, um, someone mentioned a lot of self-care is actually aftercare and that's not sustainable. This sense that you know, self-care should be a regular practice that we engage in to refill our cup regularly. And aftercare is what, you know, we've had a rough day and therefore we need to do something to take care of our body and ourself. That's not actually sustainable. What we need is systems that allow us to do regular self-care. And I talk a little bit about that, but I didn't have that phrasing yet and I wish that I had. Um, so, yeah, just trying to figure out like, how do I fit things into those categories? And so I ended up leaving out a lot of content. I decided um, about midway through researching and writing to not address, um, <laughs> to not address autism or ADHD, um, to not address the kind of things that fall under those categories of neurodiversity because the communities of those who are autistic and who live with ADHD and those communities overlap are still discerning and having conversations within their communities about, is this a mental illness? Is this a different way of processing the world and information? And I didn't feel right codifying either of them in the book. And I didn't feel that 
with the amount of time and, and space that I had to write that I could treat either as well as they deserved to be treated. So I intentionally didn't talk about them. Um, I, and that was hard because I didn't want people to pick up the book and feel left out, but to have to decide like, what are the things that I can speak about succinctly, concretely, clearly, and correctly represent what's going on in the community right now? That was how I settled on what I did finally cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that takes so much self-awareness on your own part to be able to say like, this isn't something I can speak to, or I wouldn't like, I'm not the best person for that, which I think is maybe hard to at times come to terms with. <laughs> um, and to just be like, this book isn't that, or this, you know, there are other books on this or, uh, like this isn't the DS, you know, um, so yeah. And I know like even, uh, my book that I wrote, it's about spiritual abuse in the church. And one of my beta readers talked about ending it with like how you can prevent, like, uh, like to the reader, how the reader can not end up at a church like this. And like, and I really wrestle with that. Like, do I need to do that? Or not. And then I was like, well, that's not what my book is, you know, mm-hmm. like hopefully they'll be able to see themselves in my story enough and pick up on the red flags I've written about and the green flags. Like, you know, as I've heard, even, you know, when you're talking about things that have become a, a new thing, you know, like self-care, aftercare, like I've seen people like, oh, you've heard of red flags. Here's some green flags to look for. So yeah, hopefully people can do that. But it's like, you know, um, Dr. Chuck DeGroat wrote, uh, when narcissism comes to church, it's like, that's, that's a book on that, you know? And so to get to could come to terms with this isn't my lane or whatever the phrasing that you use takes a lot of self-awareness I think and but yeah like you're saying it can also be hard because you don't want to exclude other people so I, I understand that but how did your own journey then with mental illness sort of uh and in the church specifically impact what you're writing. I know you talked a little about that first section, you know, the sin and prayer. Uh, So yeah, how did that come into play? Yeah. One of the fascinating things that I'm still unpacking in my faith journey is that early part of our faith when we're kids and teenagers and even adults, where the way that we've been steeped in Christian language, culture, community doesn't necessarily awaken us to the fact that there are different kinds of Christians. And this is, that definitely happened for me in the late nineties. I don't think everybody grows up with that sense, but I grew up somehow just assuming like, well, I'm Christian. So anything that is Christian is also mine. It is also applicable to me. Like we're all Christians and, you know, okay, well, we worship a little differently because, um, you know, the, I, I think one of the things that contributed to this is I asked once, like, what's the difference between an Episcopalian, which is how I grew up, and a Lutheran? And somebody said, well, Lutherans stand to sing. And I was like, Episcopalians stand to sing too. Okay, so you all just think it's, it's differences in worship practice, and you don't even quite know what you're talking about. So like, okay, we're all just, you know, we're all the same inside. And so I would absorb anything that I saw in a Northwestern bookstore or in a Lifeway, um, anything that I saw with a Christian stamp on it, I absorbed and processed as like, okay, this is, this is for me too. And it took me a long time to recognize the congregation that I was raised in didn't have conversations around mental illness. I mean, it was the nineties. That was, that would have been pretty forward thinking for them to do so. And so I absorbed what was going on in Christian culture around me. And so even though my church didn't directly pass on really harmful messages, about depression and anxiety, which I live with, or even about, uh, you know, addiction or a relationship to food or experiences of psychosis, even though my congregation wasn't talking about that, other Christian congregations were. And because I had this sense that all Christianity is for me and my church wasn't giving me concrete ways of breaking down what other churches might say, I very much absorbed this sense of like, yeah, mental illness is demon possession, um, like, you know, it's a failure of faith if you just try harder. Also, because I wasn't given language, I sometimes interpreted some of my symptoms as a sign of deep faith. So for example, I was attending an Assemblies of God youth group in the midweek when I was in high school, and I would just, like, I would cry so hard during every, you know, the, the part where the music gets slower, and it's time for the altar call, and people are praying, 
assembly of God, so people are praying in tongues and they're laying out of hands. And I'm just like weeping and so moved. And every single time I was like, wow, Jesus is really working hard on my heart. And now I'm like, I was also deeply depressed. And so I think there was, there was this relief in this moment that other people were feeling deep emotions and deep transformation. And for me, I was feeling these deep emotions, but I felt them every single week. And it took me a long time to notice, yeah, sometimes people cry, but not everybody cries every week. And so just because we weren't able to talk about mental illness in you know, a helpful way or in a healthy way, I was just interpreting my symptoms and my experiences in such, such different ways. And I think long-term unhelpful ways. Yeah, that's so interesting to see like by what was omitted in your church context, how you could then you're looking for that information or absorbing it, even if you're not intentionally seeking it out, just how impressionable we are as children, as teenagers. And so to then internalize those messages and then see yourself that way, and then seeing how your then journey out of that, and then being able to then use all that experience to write a book, to try to, like you said, minimize that harm, minimize the, uh, probability or severity, like, oh, all those things. Yeah. To bring that in. And I think it's really important to talk about autonomy, even in this, because I know like you had some experiences too. And yeah. And just this idea of, uh, I'm actually, I just ordered my body is not a prayer request by mm-hmm. Dr. Amy Kinney. And cause I was listening to her episode on the permission to be podcast and for her to talk about people coming up to her and wanting to pray for her. And then it's like, well, the spirit led me to right. And so I think we, we treat like disability and mental illness and all these things as something to be fixed instead of trusting the wisdom of the people who are experiencing these things. And so, yeah, like, I just think it's so important to talk about consent and autonomy around these conversations. And in your chapter on trauma, like you wrote about how many systems of evangel, sorry, evangelism and ministry rely on individuals giving up their own autonomy and working for no pay quote for the gospel, even though leaders at higher levels draw full salary. So yeah, like why would you say it's important to address this component of autonomy in conversations about mental illness? I think what we're and again, I'm not a not a scientist, not a psychiatrist, not licensed therapist, but I do think what we see in a lot of the literature around the trauma that can lead to or contribute to the development of mental illness is the removal of body autonomy. And to some extent, that's a very simplistic definition of trauma, right? Like you were exposed to something you didn't want to be. And there's that violation of your autonomy. Now, that's, I think, more of a Venn diagram overlap than a necessary guarantee. There are certainly other traumas that are not strictly about autonomy. And there are experiences of losing our autonomy that are not necessarily traumatic. But I think one of the most important things is just recognizing how that autonomy how that sense of having some authority or control over our own bodies, our minds, and our experiences is important to understanding what's helpful for me, what's spiritually fulfilling for me. And, you know, there's the opposite danger of when we let people decide, you know, this is what's good for me. uh, This is what I want. People can often fall into things that become false idols, right? Like we're, we're looking at that in America right now. Like, well, what's right for me and therefore what God has given me is to own an entire military grade arsenal of weapons, despite the fact that the easy access to those is a direct contributor to why mass shootings can happen at the the violent rate that they do. We want to categorize that as like, well, this is about autonomy, like this is about my rights, it's about my freedom to own these things. And so to give ourselves too far into the gospel of autonomy can be dangerous, right? We need that sense of community. What does my autonomy, my freedom have to do with people's community? But if we compromise it too far and say, well, okay, it's, it's going to be the community's decision about what's best for you. What often happens is the community's decision happens to be, you know, what benefits the people who are on top of that community who are leading it often wealthy white men, um, 
who are leading these conversations and deciding, well, you give up your autonomy and I will coincidentally not have to give up mine. And I think identifying that as a problem in spaces in general, but especially in Christian spaces, because I think that's so opposite of what we see in Jesus's ministry and in the early church where people are recognizing the correct places to put down their power and the correct places to uh, um, to uphold and support other people's autonomy. I think if we don't do that, the church is just continuing to fall apart along the lines of violation and, and breaking autonomy and trauma. And this is why I love talking to you. I'm just like, again, I've just all the, here I am feeling just church right now. Like, mm-hmm. oh, so, so good. And yes, how much comes back to power, who holds it, what they're doing with it. Whoo, yes. Um, so I, I don't have anything else to say there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but in the chapter on trauma, you also wrote about trauma informed Christianity. And I want to read this quote from there where you said trauma-informed Christianity will also require our own awareness of how we have focused on forgiveness of the perpetrator rather than healing protection and restoration for the victim. And so I will try to be brief in some backstory here to lead into the question. Uh, so after I was spiritually abused at the church where I'd been for a decade, I went to the Southern church, a second church and reached out for help while I was there on my healing journey and thought maybe they could help me pay for therapy. When I arrived for the meeting, I'd been paired up with two lay members who were just part of the quote care team is what it was called. These two people were not staff members. They had no formal training for how to walk with someone who has been spiritually abused and is carrying trauma from that, right? When I mentioned that I had written a letter to my former pastor, the one who had spiritually abused me, one of the people that I was meeting with, she asked me, was it a letter of forgiveness? And she talked with me about how I needed to focus on God and what God says about me, not the pastor or what the pastor had done. And so as the meeting went on, I started to cry at one point, as most people would, uh, because of how she was handling the whole situation. And she looks at me and says, well, I'm a tough coach. So I eventually start hyperventilating. Mm -hmm. And when I finally calmed down, she shrugged and declared, I want to say, I'm sorry, but it's my flesh that wants to say, I'm sorry. The spirit is saying it's okay. And now I'm about to cry. So as someone who was already struggling with even wanting to be part of organized religion at that point, I was expecting empathy. I was expecting people who would enter into my suffering and I was expecting to feel love. And so I can see like, maybe if my situation had been different, these people would have been better equipped for a conversation with me and and a better fit for it. But I think maybe if they were trauma informed, (laughs) the situation would have gone quite differently. Um, and so just with that story, that that's what came to my mind when I read about trauma informed Christianity, and that's about spiritual abuse, you know, and and then there are so many other forms of trauma as well, but yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, in addition to helping us understand how we focused on forgiveness of the perpetrator, rather than on the healing and the restoration of, uh, and the protection of the victim, like why else is trauma-informed Christianity essential and how can that change our interactions with people who have experienced trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially trauma-informed Christianity or trauma, trauma-informed anything is the, the understanding that people may be coming into the, a situation with really painful background experiences and how do we gently care for that and, and create space. And so one of the things I like about trauma-informed as a phrase is that we understand we can't predict all of the problems in any given situation, nor can we prevent them. There are certain things that could be, you know, a trauma-informed practice that could be actually re-traumatizing for another person. So for example, um, our church building has doors that do not have handicap accessibility. Because for 167 hours of the week, those doors are locked. They are school doors. The only way to open them is with a key card. And then on Sunday mornings during worship, we unlock them so that people can come in and out easily. And of course, that's when you have adults flowing in and out of the building. Now, what is, you know, that's a passage, that's a a right of protection and an action of care 
for the students that use the building when it functions as a school. But for us, if we had somebody coming to the door who can't operate a door on their own, it actually becomes a situation of, at the very least, a microaggression, this reminder for somebody who has a physical disability that like you're, it, it can accidentally portray the, the statement, you're not welcome here. And so what trauma-informed Christianity is, is trying to do is not prevent every problem, but just teach us how to respond to it when they arise, because anticipating every issue is impossible. But understanding essentially that one, there's very, very infrequently is there a one-size-fits-all solution. Aside from like Jesus is a one-size-fits-all solution, I suppose, but even then, like Jesus as the one-size-fits-all solution for a rich person who is exploiting their workers is very different than Jesus as a solution for somebody who is systematically marginalized and oppressed. So even though it's the same answer, that's going to take very different shapes in how those two people are liberated and saved in their understanding and experience of Jesus Christ. And so that, that understanding that just because it works for one person doesn't mean it works for everyone is I think one of an essential, one of the essential parts of trauma-informed Christianity and of creating church spaces that don't re-traumatize or cause spiritual harm. Of course, the difficulty with that is that you need to almost often, I would say, be doing retraining of lay people and I think pastors too, um, just because we have, you know, even if we're, you know, highly educated, we have a degree in all that does not mean that we're educated on new understandings of trauma and mental illness or anything else under the sun. And so having continuing education is going to be essential, but it's hard if you're trying to do, you know, big church, uh, you know, a mega church. Okay, well, we got people who are in need. So let's equip some lay people to do that. And we basically take whoever we get as volunteers because we want to make sure we've got enough people. But you know, we're not getting the best of the best. And then we get this person who's like, not that great, but oh, one person had a really good experience with how tough she was. So we're gonna keep her on the team. And then all of a sudden you have this situation where re-traumatizing is happening. Yeah, I mean, the person that I met with, she said that she does triage work. So I think that she's used to meeting with people who have been uh, harmed in ways that weren't the spiritual abuse. So there was this minimization that she carried into my situation. Mm -hmm. And I think if she had been better trained and equipped, yeah, and it was a mega church. And I think there is this idea of, well, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll take you on. Like we, we need as many people as we can get. And so, yeah, I think that she just kind of carried this mentality into our conversation of, oh, so a pastor was mean to you, which I'm like, okay, but even that, like a pastor shouldn't be mean to people. <laughs> like, even if you think like, oh, that's it, <laughs> you know, but anyways, so, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I get like, like you were saying, like, we can't anticipate every problem that arises. Cause I'm like, I can't even anticipate every little thing that's going to trigger me, you know, and I might think I have worked through something and something read, you know? And so then, yeah, like how to get to a point where I can be gentle with myself and work through that. And then how to equip people so that when something arises, they can work through that. Yeah. Um, and then these last couple questions before we get into our, our wrap up questions have to do with the self-care uh, in your chapter on self-care. You wrote about how coping mechanisms that served you well, and maybe even saved you five years ago may suffocate you now. And so in my own life, I can look back on when I was a teenager and, you know, I would say like, I'm as selfish or I was as selfish as they come, or, but if I want to like approach that with more um, compassion and curiosity, I could say it was like self-protective mm. because I had to learn that. Like I, my experiences, the way I internalized them was, well, no one else is going to show up for me. You know, I have to put myself first. Right. And so I did, even if that hurt other people, or if I was inconsiderate of people that I should have considered. Uh, and so that's, that's one like self-protective coping mechanism that I employed. So I was curious if you could share about a coping mechanism that served you well for a time and maybe how it did that, but then how it began to suffocate you and what you did as a result. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, one of the ones that I'm actually working through right now is this sense of what is a what is a calling and what is a vocation. And I went to a college that was very into vocation and like find your the passion and like do it and very much the messaging of the early zeros of like, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, which is so cute now because we see people, you know, I see people following their passion projects and it's like, 
find something you love and you will never stop working. Uh, and if you get really <laughs> lucky, you get to do other people's jobs for them too. And part of that's about the economy, right? Like we were surging through this, this great gift of an economy in the late nineties, early zeros when these, this language is being developed. And then I graduate from college in 2007. And one of the first major recessions is 2008. And so this, this change in how do we understand what's our, what's our calling and what does it mean to be, to walk through the world in a meaningful way? I think I was very much taught and absorbed that that was, you know, your career should be your calling. And one of the gifts that I've been experiencing is understanding that sometimes your career, sometimes what you get paid to do, whether you call that a job or a career is it's okay if that's not necessarily like the thing that makes you come alive. And in fact, that can be set aside as, you know, maybe, maybe you don't want to monetize the things that make you come alive. And instead you want to participate in them when they give you joy rather than relying on them for a paycheck. And of course, I, I know the irony in saying this as a, you know, a full-time paid pastor, but I do think it's one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor in relating to other people because, and I mean, I have enough of an imagination that I don't think it hinders me terribly, but this sense of not everyone is moving through the world doing a job they love. And so this, you know, I think it was really meaningful for me to understand like what I'm stepping into as my career and my lifelong vocation is something that is a calling that is important for me, is important for the world, is something that I feel God draws me into. But it's also okay to say like garbage collection is a calling, even if it's not something that brings you joy, it's still something that is making the world a better place and for which you can receive fair pay. And that's important too. And so moving past understanding vocation as this like find out who you are and do it to the best of your abilities and into the understanding of vocation is about the way we live together in community has been very liberating for me. Yeah. And just that word community like has come up a couple of times mm -hmm. in this conversation. So for all of it, like community and, and community care that gives preferential treatment to those who like, you know, when you think of the, the analogy of a shepherd with sheep and it's like, not every sheep needs the same amount of care or not every sheep needs the same amount of care on any given day, you know, like the same sheep is going to sometimes, you know, and so having that, oh, just all of it, trauma informed Christianity, community care and all these layers. And then the, the added, uh, walking with someone who is experiencing mental illness. So yeah, uh, I'm curious what, you know, we've talked a little about self-care aftercare and that difference there. So what would you say your self-care looks like, uh, on your walk with mental illness? Yeah. Um, I have a couple, I have three major components to my self-care practice. Um, so the first one is breakfast before coffee, um, which is very specific. And, um, because, you know, a lot of my, I mean, uh, a lot of anyone's um, brain biology is formed by what you eat and how your body processes it. And so when I start just hitting my body with iced coffee first thing in the morning, weirdly enough, it contributes to my anxiety and just really th throwing a whole bunch of caffeine into my system without any like cushioning in my stomach makes me feel worse. That's kind of strange, but okay. So that's um, one of the core self-care practices. Um, the second one being sunshine. So getting outside or just sitting by a window and enjoying it um, when it's, you know, in the six months of the year here in Minnesota where it's winter and you don't really enjoy the sun if you go outside. <laughs> and then the third one being um, physical movement. And so for a while that was a yoga practice. Right now I'm, I'm journeying more into taking our, um, our dogs on a, on a walk. I just checked to see if they're in the room. Cause if I say that word and they can hear it, they <laughs> get very excited. Um, and so those three things, which is, it's very interesting because those are a lot of physical body care for my mental health. And we often separate the two things, right? Like, well, you do this for your body, you know, and you do this for your brain, but really what we come to know is that those two are inextricably linked. And so taking care of my body does actually also take care of my brain and my spirit. I love those because one, like, it seems that they're just so practical, but when you see the dividends they pay out for your overall health, including your mental health, because like you said, you cannot separate the two and that they're just, they're, they're quote, easy things to do. Like they're things that anyone can decide to implement. And then that's that self-care and that sustainable model 
rather than the aftercare, not to diminish those things of, you know, after you've had a long day to soak in a tub and, you know, do whatever the thing is that you do to help you unwind from that. But when you've been doing the things and I I can say for myself, I can see the difference in how I react to something when I've been prioritizing those things that help me get centered versus when I haven't been doing those things. And So, yeah, I love those so much. Um, Well, Emmy, what would you say to someone listening who does feel weary as they walk with mental illness or are walking alongside someone else with mental illness? One of the most important things to say to those of us who are walking with mental illness or those of us who accompany people with mental illness is the, the experience that you're having is actually very common. One of the biggest lies of mental illness is this sense of isolation of no one else is going through this or I'm different somehow and I'm broken. And the truth is that a lot of people experience what you're experiencing. So um, for people with depression, a lot of people experience that, you know, not only an emotional weariness, but, or, you know, it's, it goes beyond sadness. It can, fe- it can be just be- feeling empty or feeling irritable. And so sometimes people will feel that and they're like, well, I'm not depressed because I just don't feel anything. And I'm like, no, that's, that's depression too. You're, you're actually, you're feeling something that is real and you don't need to downplay the symptoms. You don't need to pretend like it's not happening. What's happening to you is real. And it is actually a a common or even normal experience of, of mental illness. You're not actually alone. And so if you were to tell a doctor or a therapist about what you're struggling with, they wouldn't be surprised. They would be able to connect you with resources that can help with it. If you found resources or support groups, there will be other people that have experienced similar things, that you are not somehow broken or defective or or less than human for what you're experiencing. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And again, just the... to let that sit, like you're not alone. Um, uh, cause I know like belonging and feeling like I belong is just, I know it's just such a tender place for me. And it's just such a human longing, a longing to belong. Yeah. And to feel mm-hmm. like someone can someone can connect with you. Yeah. Um, well, these final questions are ones that I'm borrowing from Tasha Hunter, who has a podcast when we speak and Mm. I love these questions. And so I wanted to close us out with these who or what inspires you. I still find so much hope and, and joy in scripture. And I talk about that a lot in one coin found, but I still find so much to empower me and keep driving me forward in the records of the faithful lives of the, the faith ancestors that came before me. And sometimes I find that right on the page. Sometimes I find it in something that confuses me and doing further research. But this sense of being connected to this larger experience of the divine is still so moving for me. Oh, I want that again. Like, I want that. <laughs> because it when I hear you work. talk it about it. It took some work to get there. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I hear you talk about it. I'm like, I want to get there again. Um, yeah, who or what makes you laugh these days? Oh, my wife. My wife always does. She's one of the funniest people that I know. And of course, she gives me grief about that every time. Because on the way off to our first date, I'm leaving the house. Uh, my roommate says to me, where are you going? I say, I'm going on a date. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I say, yeah, I don't think it's going to work out. She's not that funny. And she turned, she just was like, she was very serious in texting conversation. And then when we got, when we met, she was just hilarious and it was fantastic. She makes me laugh every day. Right now we just got this eight week old, no, I guess he's nine now, nine week old fluff ball kitten, um, who to be in a, com- uh, a friend for our older, uh, one-year-old cat. So now we have functionally two kittens in the house and they play and they jump all over each other. And we just spend the whole evening watching them because they're just so funny. Um, yeah. so just the, the sense of being able to have something constant in my life that's making me laugh so regularly. It's such a gift. Mm, I love that. And especially in a pandemic, like Mm -hmm. looking for to have someone who makes you laugh. And then for y'all to together have these kittens, Bert and Ernie, is this, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it so much. Okay. Well, when you want to dance, what song or type of music gets you dancing? I mean, I'm right now I'm really into like the pop hits from the nineties. So pulling back, you know, those senses of my childhood, I think I saw somewhere like 
it can activate that part of your brain that had the energy you did when you were a child <laughs> in your 20s, kind of depending like, huh, oh yeah, okay, my body remembers what it was like to like dance and move around and, you know, either go to clubs or like make mixes for my friends or dance around at slumber parties, wherever you kind of, you know, drew and expelled that energy. And I think for me, as someone in her mid to late 30s, I need that sense of feeling <laughs> like I'm 20 again. And so trying to dig back some of the, like the hits from my high school era, especially, and just really enjoy those has been really fun for me. I love that. And now I know mm-hmm. what I'm going to go listen to. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. And Spotify oh. has so many good playlists for that. And I'm just like, yes, go, let's do that. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. Well, where can people find you on social media and stay up to date on your work with all who are weary and anything else you're doing that you would like to, to share about? Yeah. Um, my most frequent social media space is Instagram. And so people can find me on Instagram at Emmy Kegler, E-M-M-Y-K-E-G-L-E-R. And um, I have lots of videos and photos of Bert and Ernie on there. So you can certainly check those out. I also have a presence on Twitter and on Facebook and um, on TikTok, all of those being at Emmy Kegler. Again, um, my TikTok has not been updated recently because I just, it's, not as fun, um, but that's fine. Uh, and then I also have a website, emmykegler.com, where I feature um, upcoming writings and things. So you can find me in a lot of spaces on social media, and it's all at Emmy Kegler. Perfect. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, thank Great. you so much for coming onto the podcast again and for sharing more about your journey and your newest book and how we can ease the burden on the walk with mental illness. And I'm just so grateful to have connected with you and I appreciate your time today so very much. Thank you so much for having me again, Nikki. It's just always such a delight to sit down and get to chat with you. So thank you. Yeah. And thanks for kind of rolling with it. Every time we got interrupted when I listeners won't know this, but I kept having to cut my camera off and mute myself. <laughs> so she just came in again to say it's 10 29. We haven't had snack. <laughs> so I'm like, I should go feed them. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, thank you so much, Emmy. It was great. Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you so much for listening to broadening the narrative. Follow me on Instagram at broadening the narrative. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and follow the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Your engagement helps others find the show. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend and on your social media. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. My memoir, Ask Familiar's Family, is now available to purchase through my website at NikkiPappas.com. As Familiar's Family explores how I was groomed for toxic relationships and religion and how I got out. And I know I'm not the only one. So head to my website to buy a copy for yourself and anyone else who is hurting and healing from toxic relationships and religion. The music for this season was created by Joshua Pappas, my oldest child. We worked together using the Chrome Music Lab song maker and had so much fun. I also want to thank Daniel Boland for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for podcast episodes as they become available by visiting my website. Until next time, grace and peace, friends.